Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. And in this special episode of Money Talks, we're going to explore the retail banking revolution. A very conservative industry is finally being shaken up by mobile technology, and the implications are profound. Banks are not ordinary firms. When they stumble, so does the economy. We'll hear from upstarts changing what it means to be a bank. So what exactly is Revolut? The incumbents who are having to evolve or perish. I started carrying a slide, a transparency around, which basically says, what would Jeff do? This is shorthand to say you must think like Amazon. And the ordinary people experiencing a fundamental shift in how they spend, save and invest their money. Picture a bank. What do you see? It might be fronted with Doric stone columns, or it could be a medley of glass and steel, but it's almost certainly a physical building. Inside, cashiers behind desks are shuffling papers, and customers are waiting in queues. But not for much longer. OK, when I log in, I can see a screen saying, Good morning, Rakefet. That's the start. I can see... Rakefet Rusak runs Israel's oldest bank, Lumi. Founded in London, it's almost twice as old as the state of Israel. But she's giving me a tour of Israel's youngest bank, Pepper, on her mobile phone. Because the look and feel is more like a Facebook or WhatsApp. Through the main menu, I can access all my financial activities, everything I want. The current account, the, the, the transfers, uh, my payments, loans that I took, everything. I can also uh, locate the nearest ATM. And then when I scroll down my feed, I can see a whole world of customized content. I can see here on my feed that so far I spent X amount of shekels this month in my favorite coffee shop. And they also tell me that it's much more than others my age or my kind. So it's funny, I I see that I'm drinking too much coffee. That's not the kind of life advice I'm used to getting from my bank. But when Rakefet took over as Lumi's boss seven years ago and began visiting branches, she sensed that something was wrong. Over the past two decades, digital services have transformed pretty much every aspect of everyday life. Taxis, films, novels, noodles, doctors and dog walkers can all be summoned at the tap of a screen. Giant firms in retailing, car making and the media have been felled by new competitors. But banking has resisted change. Until now. I could see very easily that the current retail banking is totally, totally passé. I could see all the people coming there and waiting. I didn't believe that it could go on. And if I ask you, Helen, when was the last time you were in a bank branch? (laughs) It's more than 20 years ago, Rekhefet. I was an early adopter of online banking, and that's meant that I've been a late adopter of mobile banking. This This is where the idea came from. You have to take into account that customers already, they expect 
a different user experience than what they get in banking. And also technology is there. You don't, you don't have to wait for a technological breakthrough to have a change. So it's like it's cheaper, it's nicer, it's easier to use, and it's more personalized. And it's real time. Rekefet is one of the pioneers. She launched Pepper in 2017 at the leading edge of a wave that is building in the West, with fintechs and mobile-only neobanks like Monzo in Britain and Revolut across Europe. But to get a clear picture of what's coming for banking, you have to go to Asia and meet some of the more than one billion people there for whom payment apps are a way of life. On Alipay, I do everything. I'm, I invest. I in Karen and Richard are two young professionals working in Shanghai, China's financial capital. They told me how the two most widely used payment apps, Alipay, which is owned by Alibaba, the world's biggest e-commerce firm, and its main rival, WeChat Pay, which grew out of the country's most popular messaging app, have become central to how they both manage their money. And every day in the morning I wake up and I check my Alipay account to see how much profits I've earned today. <laughs> and what else? What else do you do on these platforms? Um, for example, I uh, maybe I share a meal with my friends and then we split the bills and I transfer the money for them on WeChat or Alipay. So Richard, you use both of these services too. And what to you is the attraction? By using WeChat Pay, we basically do not need to bring wallets from uh, every day. It is more convenient for us to use our smartphones. And compared with banks, you have to wait a long queue. And second, we have more choices uh, by using these digital tools compared with traditional banks. And when did that change? Um, I think uh, it's from last year or quite recently because uh, maybe in Two or three years ago, WeChat or Alipay is not commonly used compared to now. So especially the older generation, they, they just started to get familiar in the recent two or three years. In those few years, Ant Financial, Alibaba's financial services arm, has become one of the most valuable fintechs in the world, valued at some $150 billion. In certain lights, it looks just like a giant bank. I wanted to find out more about how this extraordinary growth happened and if anything like it could happen elsewhere. So along with our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, I headed for Hangzhou, where Ant has its headquarters. As we waited for our train from Shanghai, I quizzed Simon about the company. So you've been living here for about 10 years now, haven't you? What do you attribute its amazing success to? The, the banking system... Uh, in China traditionally was sclerotic. It was really uh, inefficient. It was difficult to use. Uh, savers couldn't get a decent return on their bank accounts. And then Ant came out of nowhere and it made payments a lot easier. Uh, it made it easier for small businesses to get loans. And it meant that ordinary people could get a decent return on their savings. Um, so it was just wildly popular from, from the outset. And the technology was really, really easy to use. It's really intuitive. Um, so it just, it just took off. There was a massive opening in the market, uh, and they, they moved into that opening very quickly. We talked to senior executives at Ant in their imposing purpose-built headquarters, and then they took us into the streets of Hangzhou to see how their technology is changing life for small businesses. These kind of brick-and-mortar stores is like a, a classic, ordinary like, street-side store. The online business world and offline business world are merging 
、uh, quickly in China. So they also want to like、uh, grab the chances from the online world. How to do this? So when a customer comes into the store and、uh, pay, then at the、uh, payment page you can bookmark the store, and then next time you don't have to come here. You can order like from your office. Right. So this help them to build customer loyalty. Sure. And、uh, also because Alipay has millions of users, it also bring them new customers. Simon and I spoke to Peng Yusha, who sells her favorite milk teas from her cute little shop, Meet the Cow. She's seen her average number of customers rise from around fifty a day to nearer seventy. And she attributes this to how easy it is to use the AliPay app. It lets customers order in advance and pay by scanning a QR code. They have a lot of school children. One of the reasons they set up here is that there's a school nearby,、mm-hmm. and kids 16, 17 love it. And I said, how do they pay for it?、And、she said, well, yeah, obviously with AliPay. And she said, even six-year-old kids, their mom might be at the store next door, and they'll give the kid their phone to come over, buy a tea, scan it. And then they'll bring the phone back to their mother to complete the transaction. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of having to live without AliPay provoked peals of laughter. Too much tragic to be put. Yeah. Ooh, I always lose my bank cards. I've lost a million times, but it shows you a mobile phone. You always have it in your hand. You'll never lose it, of course. What's really interesting in China and more broadly across Asia is the way that these new financial firms have grown organically out of services that are already deeply embedded in people's lives, and they're offered on multi-purpose platforms, which means that the firms have access to vast pools of customer data. So AliPay and Ant Financial both grew out of e-commerce, and AliPay's main rival, WeChat Pay, grew out of messaging. It's part of Tencent, a giant social media and gaming conglomerate. And if you look in Korea, the favourite chat app Kakao Talk now has a payment app and a bank alongside it. And across Southeast Asia, payment apps have grown out of the two dominant ride-hailing services, Grab and Gojek. These totally new sorts of financial firms are a big challenge for traditional banks in the region. In 2014, Alibaba was preparing to list in New York. Piyush Gupta, the chief executive of DBS, Singapore's biggest bank, was watching with growing alarm. We had the opportunity to have a conversation, a breakfast meeting、uh, with Jack Ma of、uh, Alibaba. Already by then, they had become one of the largest and fastest-growing payment companies in the world. But as you looked at their future plans, it was beginning to be clear that they would be in lending. They would be in fundraising. They would be in insurance, and the model that they were going to use would be fundamentally very different from the model of any current、uh, incumbent bank. They were going to do everything digitally and electronically. That meeting really caused us to、uh, take stock. It, in frankly,、uh, gave us cause to worry because if that model were to succeed, then the old way of banking would. Be changed for good. Piyush told me that he walked away from that meeting scared out of his wits. He realised that DBS and other traditional banks like it would have to reinvent themselves from the inside out. I started carrying a slide, a transparency around, which basically says, "What would Jeff do?" This was shorthand to say you must think like Amazon and must figure how would Amazon deal with any kind of problem and situation. They acquire customers completely electronically. So they've got to the art of instant fulfillment for every transaction. 
The technology companies have got a model which allowed them to work through partnerships. They in fact wound up creating platforms. And finally, they had really mastered the art of using data to seduce the customer to do more and more without having to product push. So we decided to try and change our own business models to mimic uh, the technology companies and see if we could do business the way they did business. What DBS is doing gives an idea of the vast potential benefits of technological change. Its root and branch transformation is often held up as an example to other incumbents. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But the largest market for financial services hasn't yet been shaken up by the mobile banking revolution, and that's America. Incumbents are protected by a complicated system of state and federal regulation. Brian Moynihan is the boss of Bank of America, one of the big four banks that together hold over a third of the country's deposits. He acknowledges that the industry is changing, but he sees the fintechs as less of a threat than as a useful nudge in the right direction. We invest more than most fintechs will ever see to invest in our life. We invest $3 billion a year in code. And so in every week, a million plus lines go into the systems. And so we have an artificial intelligence-based uh, voice recognition thing called Erica. It has five or six million users using it. Um, we have 27 million as of the end of March mobile users. 20, 25% of our sales are digital. When we looked at the loan fintech startups uh, that came up over the last uh, four or five years, you know, they approve a loan in 35 seconds for this or that, and they'll brag. We looked at it and said, so what are we missing? And our small business lending had lengthened out to 20 days. Now we've moved it back in that area to a couple days. Our view is to properly underwrite a company. You, you need some time. Now, the reality is 20 days was too long. And so we approved the process, improved the automation and stuff like that. For loans up to $500 million companies, we, we turned around in five days. So what did we learn from the fintechs? Speed up your process. And that we did. So do physical bank branches have a future? You know, 20 years ago when I first, 20 years, almost 30 years ago, when I got into the business side of this, you know, I'd have the consultants come in and say, there'll be no bank branches in 20 years. Well, guess what? There are. And the reality is we have 800,000 great clients come into our stores every day and we serve them well. And so this digitization everybody talks about is relentless and new. But the branches are, are newer and different. So over the last three years, we've redone 1,500 of the branches or so. We've added three or 400 new branches. We'll add another 500 over the next few years. So when people say, what do, you, do you know what's going to happen? I, I, the answer is I don't know. But what I do know is it'll be guided by the customer. That's what it's all about. The customer has to determine the behavior. If you get ahead of the customer, you're going to mess this up. A warning there, don't get ahead of the customer. Is that what these fintechs risk doing? I decided to join a crowd of young professionals for dinner in Singapore to find out what they really want from a bank. Hi, everyone. I was talking to digital natives in one of the world's most connected cities, so I was surprised when some of them seemed hesitant about mobile banking. For me, I transact um, between people on my app, um, but actually I go into my bank a lot. Why? I, really? Yeah, outside of drawing cash or the basics, 
Um, I go into my bank a lot for mortgage stuff. Um, trying to actually talk to someone to see. Are if you I trying to get a mortgage at the moment, or I just got a mortgage yeah. also with DBS. So all of the high money, high stakes type decisions, I would always want to go into. So even if even if that had been completely seamless on an app, you would have wanted to see a human being. I think so. How can you answer every question on an app? I think. I mean, either that or I talk to somebody. Right. So someone would need to physically be there to explain to me what I needed to know. I don't. I don't know if an app can terms and conditions your mortgage in the same way can terms and conditions yeah. other things because it's so much more sensitive talking about your own money, right? Yeah. I think so a lot I, of banks are trying to move away from that. Well, I guess if you look globally, the problem with branches is they've contributed more to financial exclusion historically than they have inclusion. Brett King plays out these kinds of scenarios for a living. He's a noted futurist and the author of a book called Banking 4.0. He's also the founder of Movin, one of the very few neobanks in America. So what about those customers who don't trust or know how to use or simply can't afford the technology for mobile banking? What about the elderly or the poor? Surely there's still a case for physical branches. You know, if you look at, uh, um, you know, prior to 2008, about half of the world's population didn't have a bank account. And the only way you could get it is by going to a bank branch and presenting identity documents. And both of those things have been frustrations in, in respect to the poorer segments of society getting access to banking. So we've seen uh, big changes in inclusion in markets like uh, Kenya with M-Pesa or in India with the Aadhaar card. And neither of those massive shifts in financial inclusion have been as a result of bank branches. They've all been as a result of the mobile phone. So honestly, our view is that um, the mobile phone is a far better mechanism for creating inclusion than bank branches. But the prospect of a global financial system based on smartphones throws up other concerns for many customers. When you no longer visit your bank, but you instead carry it around with you everywhere in your pocket, how much will these companies know about you and your life? With access to more data, banks can offer more tailored services. But how will that information be shared? And what if it's compromised? I put those questions to my young dinner companions in Singapore. My husband uses um, Apple Pay now yeah. on his Yeah. I've lost my phone four times a year for like however long I can remember, so I'm definitely not going to have any of that on my phone. But he's so comfortable with But if it. it's protected by your thumbprint, his voice and face recognition. No, no, no. I just don't trust myself. It's not the system. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like my husband and my sister and a few of my friends at work are constantly... We go for lunch and they don't even bring a wallet anymore. It's yeah. just like you tap and go. I think I'm okay sacrificing some privacy yeah. depending on the return that I get yeah. by sacrificing. Yeah, I agree. If I get good recommendations, if I like if that happens then it's okay. But if you know my privacy is breached for something that I don't want them using it for, then I'm not okay. But I wouldn't know that. So I wouldn't right. know that. But Brett King is confident that technology itself can solve these problems. There's a lot of concern about data privacy and things like this. But actually, I, I think um, identity issues that we have associated with bank accounts today, like identity theft, that sort of disappears because if I'm building something that's behaviorally linked to you uniquely, then I resolve that. But of course, there is potential for abuse with any new technologies like this. So I guess the really interesting part of this is regulators, if they want to reduce risk to the market, 
they're going to have to become technology savvy as well to uh, be able to manage these uh, new ways of banking as they emerge in society. As regulators adapt, that will throw up new obstacles in what has been, in some countries, a relatively open field. Here's Piyush Gupta of DBS Bank in Singapore again. As regulators are coming to speed and coming to terms with how a digital world should work, uh, they keep rethinking their own assessment of what is kosher and what is not. And so you have to keep adapting to that. Our Asia editor Simon Rabinovich sees the same challenges slowing even the juggernaut of Ant Financial. Well, I think Ant is uh, is looking at two different areas. One is is domestic, and, and the second is abroad. Domestically, they've grown incredibly quickly, uh, but they're beginning to face serious regulatory headwinds, um, simply because the the regulator and the uh, banks around it are concerned that they've grown too big too quickly. So things are beginning to be slowed down for them. Um, abroad, uh, they've been very aggressive in expanding, especially in Southeast Asia. They tried to make a very big acquisition in America as well. Some countries have been very open and receptive to their technology. Uh, other countries, including America, uh, have been much more reluctant to let them in. So they're, they're having grown so quickly, they're now beginning to face the uh, uphill challenge of different regulatory regimes. But as the incumbents and regulators play catch-up, the technology isn't standing still. From sending your child to pay for your bubble tea with a QR code, to arranging a small business loan through your phone in a couple of minutes, what we've seen so far is just the beginning. I asked Brett King to gaze into his crystal ball and tell me what it'll be like to be a customer of the bank of the future. Things like voice-based personal assistance, the you know the smart speakers, and then uh, you know in maybe five or six years, the use of spatial computing, things like uh, smart glasses with augmented reality in them. So as each of these new technologies come into play, banking becomes increasingly contextual. It becomes embedded in the world around you, responsive to your needs. Say buying a home, you'll walk into a home that's listed on the. Uh, the real estate market, and automatically you'll be presented with options um, based on financing for that home. Or if you think about something like credit access, you, know, you won't go to a bank branch to get a credit card in the future because you know if you walk into a grocery store and you don't have enough cash to complete your grocery shopping today, your uh, bank account will immediately offer you that as you walk in the grocery store. So if I asked you in a few years' time to picture a bank, your answer would be quite different. If you look at the competency for a bank in 2030 or even 2025, the key competencies that enable you to continue to engage customers and provide them with banking efficiently is your technology skills, your technology capability. Um, Data scientists, experienced designers, behavioral psychologists, all, all of that that is around the experience layer. So none of it really is traditional banking skills. But that also means that you have to, um, you know, change the organization structure. You have to uh, start thinking about the leadership of the business. Who's on the board? Is there technologists on the board? I mean, really, the big shift is that banks need to become technology companies, more like an ant financial or the challenger banks we have around the world today um, to be able to compete. Because you're not competing with other banks in the future. You're competing with technology players. No one knows which companies are going to emerge the winner of the battle to be the bank of the future. But we're definitely witnessing a huge shift in power as the different players compete to win customers over and to gain their trust. 
The way banking works right now is backward, inefficient, and about as enjoyable as going to the dentist. The mobile revolution is going to do all sorts of worthy things, like raising productivity and boosting the economy. But more than anything, for us ordinary customers who just want somewhere to put our salaries, get a mortgage and a credit card, and maybe save a bit, it's going to make banking fun. Thanks for listening to Money Talks. You can read more in this week's special report, A Bank in Your Pocket. Subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer to get the first 12 issues for just $12 or £12. I'm Helen Joyce, and back in London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.